Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 373, Let's Talk About Books, Baby, recorded March 4th, 2018, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week again. Once again, both hosts are with us. Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie Jr. Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and did you by any chance mean episode 317? What did uh, I say? Just You said like 371 or 373 did or something. I? Okay. Yeah. So I was just curious. Yeah, we have not traveled through time. It is episode 317. Dyslexia. It's a thing. It is. And <laughs> I was jumping around from different parts of the screen there because the title that the seth had there is one that i changed but i didn't put it there inside baseball people i am ron burgundy i will read whatever you put on the screen even if i read it incorrectly sorry about that so as the uh, first show of the month this is one of our um uh uh, pop culture discussions and this week we thought we would talk about our favorite book series um, and it could be more than one it could be uh, stuff we haven't read in 30 years it could be stuff we're reading right now just thought it would be fun to talk about books um, but first uh, I want to talk about broken bones uh, and I think I mentioned it last week my youngest one broke her wrist um, she fell um, out of the swing set Uh, suffered a buckle fracture of the radius, which is a very common childhood injury. Um, She's in a cast. Today, we were out in the backyard just enjoying the beautiful weather, and she just, walking upstairs, fell. Wasn't doing anything dangerous, just fell, and I'm pretty sure she broke her pinky on the same hand. So it's like the the ha- the the uh, cast goes up and wraps around the thumb and covers about half the hand. And so there's there's a very small part of her hand that she could possibly have damaged, and I'm pretty sure she broke that. So we're gonna have to go back to the uh, orthopedist tomorrow and see what we can do about that. And they're gonna be thinking, they're gonna be asking the question: Do you feel safe at home? Is is your father an angry man? <laughs> no, it's really not. So. I, I was thinking you were going to talk about another trip you had to the ER that cost $25,000 this time. <laughs> no, hopefully not this time. Um, oh, man. Um, I did want to say, I, I talked about last week that I, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, that I saw The Greatest Showman. And even though I'm not a musical guy, I enjoyed it. Um, that enjoyment has turned to hatred, vehement hatred, because my life is now consumed by the soundtrack to the greatest showman it's playing on every portal that can play music i wake up in the morning to it i come home to it it's on when i turned on pandora the other day the first thing it played was a soundtrack to the greatest showman because that's the last thing my daughter who's used my account listened to it i now hate everything about the greatest showman it is the new frozen in my life make it stop let it go mark let it go <laughs> All right, so that's all I have to say. Um, uh, so I want to hear about your uh, GPU mining rig, Miles. <laughs> I had better luck with that than I do with the audio equipment. Sheesh. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, you know, everybody sees, the, if you're a computer person, you remember the old days when there used to be those repair shops and somebody had like a computer repair shop and you'd go in there with your broken laptop or something and and they'd have all the junk around the back and you you know all these guys this is what they did right they fixed computers joe's computer shop well joe's computer shop can't stay in business anymore so it's become joe's gpu mining rig shop <laughs> <laughs> and and i'm i'm absolutely convinced if you watch any any of these like build your own mining rig on YouTube videos, it's those guys who used to be Joe's computer shop. And uh, so, you know, I, for so long I'd been – I know, Seth, you, you've, you've gone the right way and you've gone with purpose-built ASIC hardware to do proper mining. And I'd been putting it off, putting it off, and I thought, well, everybody else is having a good old time with this. I should jump in. So I built a GPU mining rig to mine Ethereum and – it's just, I don't know what to look at. I don't know whether it's a successful exercise or a, a whole pile of fail. Um, all I know is that in Arizona, we paid 23 cents a kilowatt hour and it's horrible. And Yeah, that's you know, a fail for you. That's a serious fail. 
And you know what? Now solar is a really cool thing, and I'm I'm all on solar. And I forgot about the mining. I'm only interested in how to get solar now. That's that's what happens. <laughs> well, GPU rigs have always been ineffic- inefficient, but you know when when it was easy to mine Bitcoin, it was that was worth it. Uh, so Ethereum has already jumped past the point where it's not cost productive anymore. No, it, it can be, but the problem is the cost of the capital equipment. Like, if you yeah. go and buy, if you are out looking for a graphics card of any variety these days, be prepared to spend $500 yeah, they're crazy just to even just to walk into the shop. I mean, it's nuts. And when you want to buy six or eight of them to put in a rig, that's some serious cash. And, and uh, the five hundred dollars are the cheap ones for GPU mining. Yeah. You're talking almost a thousand dollars for the current leaders. And the thing is, they're going to do the proof of stake uh, rules switch to Ethereum sometime this year, and then that's really going to screw up all of the mom and pop miners who just you know have a couple of rigs going. It's really going to favor the institutions who buy and hoard uh, their Ethereum. So, yeah, yay. Yay, open source blockchain technology. <laughs> Centralized for the man. Yeah. So that, it, it, this is, yeah. So I've learned a lot and I, at its priceless knowledge, um, I could have got it watching YouTube videos, but no stupid idiot here I had to go and buy a, a bunch of graphics cards and set this thing up. But anyway, I don't know. I have faith. Maybe in a year and a half, I'll have paid for all the capital equipment back again. And so, Seth, we don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, I'm curious about uh, you uh, have want to review a movie here that I had absolutely no interest in seeing just from the previews. When the previews can't even make you interested, when they take the best parts of the movie and distill it down to 90 seconds and it still can't make you interested, I think that's a really seriously bad movie. But you braved it so that I don't have to. So tell us about Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Okay, well, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's part of their uh, new release videos. So, you know, I, I didn't go see it at the theaters. I watched it on Amazon. So I'm already shelling out the money. I might as well use my service. And overall, I can definitely tell why the movie was not successful. It wasn't so much a bad movie. It was sort of like a chewing gum movie. Oh, that's interesting. Fine. Nice to do. And then when it's over, it's like, what did I accomplish? Nothing. Um, there are there are some really awesome visuals in the film that, you know, I, I think they were really good. And the character that Rihanna plays, what they did with her, I, I, okay, that was kind of cool, but most of all, it was just, it was, it was too short or for the amount of story they wanted to tell. So they either should have pared the story down or made it like a two part series. So it, I think it's, it would be a good movie to watch whenever you don't really want to watch a movie, but you just want to do something. So, you know, it it didn't suck, but it wasn't great. It was a thoroughly average movie um, with some some pretty good visuals, not even special effects, just some visuals in it were pretty cool. And some of the things they did were were kind. They had some unique spins. So it's an okay movie, not a bad movie. Some of the uh, I mean, some of the things coming, you see them coming a mile away. And um, but. You know, I mean, that's most movies these days. So it's very simplistically done. Not a bad movie, not a great movie. Something to do when you want to do something but aren't necessarily looking to watch a movie. So, you know. It's a background uh, movie is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, background's probably right because the plot points are few and far between. So good back. Uh, it's an okay background movie. I don't want to use the word good, but at the same time, I don't want to use the word bad, but it's a filler background movie. Any, anytime somebody says, I can't use the word good about a movie, that automatically means it's bad. <laughs> if you're just being nice, that's fine. Well, but I mean, no, I mean, you know, the acting, it wasn't so much, it wasn't bad acting, dialogue wasn't horrible, you know, the the special effects, they weren't bad, it was, it was a thoroughly average movie. All right. So... Um, so now let's talk about books. Uh, initially, I thought we'd talk about our favorite book series is um, uh, because, you know, if you're a reader 
you like to read a lot. That's that's just sort of the way things go. And I've talked about it before. I I have never been a reader. I actually do not enjoy the physical act of scanning my eyes across a line of text. Um, I can tolerate it more when text is on a screen. If you're talking, if I have to turn pages, actually make my fingers flip a page from one to the other, I'm just out. I, I just don't enjoy that at all. And a few years ago, I discovered Audible elmanopi.com slash audible um and that literally changed my life i i went from having not read you know more than 10 books in 20 years to reading uh on average a book a week uh currently i'm in the middle of a peter f hamilton book that is 40 hours of narration so uh i can't get through that in a week uh but on average i read about a book a week so uh i have just recently dived into um series of books uh so but before i talk about the my favorite series i want to mention um two books that are three really three books that for have the rereadability test now i have um uh, largely an eidetic memory i I, once i read something i memorize it um i'm not totally photographic but really close um and so for me to reread a book um is pretty unusual uh and of course i don't quite have the auditory recall uh but i do remember things really well so if i'm going to listen to an audiobook if i'm going to spend 10 hours twice on that book it has to be a pretty special book and there's really only a couple uh three i can think of off top of my head that have passed that so i want to talk about those ready player one ernest klein i have listened to that book twice um and will probably do it one more time before i go see the movie the martian I have listened to that movie twice by Martin Weir. Um, uh, listened to that book rather, uh, and um, uh, the third one just flew out of my head. It'll come back to me in a minute. Uh, <laughs> what was it? Uh, anyway, uh, books that I have uh, that I go back and and re-listen to are pretty special. But in terms of the the series of books that I have been most drawn into, uh, I mean, aside from. Uh, Tolkien and his stuff. I mean, that that's sort of iconic. Um, the Lost Fleet series by uh, Jack Campbell uh, it starts with uh, a, a, a character, uh, Black Jack Geary. Uh, he is... Uh, frozen in suspended animation, basically a life uh, lifeboat pod uh, for in excess of 100 years. And there has been a war raging for that entire 100 years that he's been asleep. And they wake him up and two things happen. One, by seniority, he is the most senior officer in all the fleet because he's over 100 years old. So immediately he's in command of the fleet. And secondly, in this 100 years of war, um, there, the war has been so brutal that anybody who were, knew how to fight a war died. And so you basically have these new recruits coming straight out of the academy and then going straight head on into battle and dying. And then they're, they're building ships and mining recruits as fast as they can. So he's in command of a fleet, uh, uh, and he's the only one who actually knows how to fight a battle on both sides, on, on his side and on the other side. Uh, so it's really fascinating the way Jack Campbell um, talks about uh, fighting battles in space, where you're traveling at near relativistic speeds, like I'm traveling at half the speed of light, you're traveling at half the speed of light. Together, we're intersecting at the speed of light. Um, how am I going to make a move now? Uh, when I've got, you know, 10 days to get there, but you're going to see the light happen in about six hours. So I really don't have about six hours of advantage, but then there's the, whatever move maneuvers you take are also going to take 10 days. So that six hours of advantage really make a big difference, even though it's 10 days between in, in uh, encounters, that cerebral aspect of the, the book series really kept me going. Uh, there's uh, six books in the original series and then another six in a follow-up series. And then they, they go on to explore the universe, the expanded universe. Uh, I'm less inter- interested in those other ones, but the uh, the Lost Fleet specifically, and then uh, the next one, uh, which is, uh, dang, I can't remember what the second series is. I'll look it up while Seth's talking about his. Uh, but that, that to me... Um, has a real satisfying sort of thing about it it's it's uh it's good physics I, I like good hard science it's good drama and if you get it on audible uh christian rummel is one of my favorite readers in fact i buy books just because he's read them even uh even if i'm not interested in the you know, or don't know anything about the story he's just that good uh so uh the lost fleet jack campbell uh it's a it's a good long series that you could enjoy you guys have any questions or comments on that one? Seth, I know you've read those books too. 
Yes, um, I thoroughly enjoyed the Lost Fleet series. The, the follow-up one, I just I was out after two books. It just it didn't interest me. Um, but I, the original series, yes, it was great. I loved it. Um, it it held my interest. That was my I read six books in two and a half day series. So um, like I I just I there was no other world but Jack the one Jack Campbell created for a weekend for me. Um, so great, I highly recommend recommend those books um those would be high up on my list of series um as well but yeah great 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 recommendation and you also get the steve gibson recommendation to amplify marks uh, and i'll just throw mine in there too so you've got the trifecta of three brilliant <laughs> sorry i just had to throw that out there so the um, the lost fleet then beyond the frontier the lost fleet is six books beyond the front frontier is five books and then the lost stars is that expanded universe stuff uh the beyond the Fun- frontier kept my attention it wasn't as good as the first six um and i've only read two uh, maybe just one i think but i think two of the lost stars and then the genesis fleet uh is sort of uh a back to the beginning i think i haven't actually read that jack campbell uh, john henry it's uh, jack campbell is his, his pen name um uh is still writing books and and that excites me that's good stuff there um but uh yeah i, I really enjoyed it and i still can't think of that third book that i that I was so excited about. I've, I've read it more than once. Why can't I remember it? Uh, all right. So now, Seth, let's talk about... So this was a book series that I really enjoyed and Seth really enjoyed. Now, Seth is going to talk about a book series that he really enjoyed and I really didn't. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the Honorverse began... It has spun up into three different series. It's kind of collapsing back down to one. But this is David Weber, the man who will not use a thousand words to describe anything. He can use five thousand words to describe. Um, so uh, he is—he is quite the prolific writer. But I love the character. Now, having said that, the first time I sat down and tried to read on Basilic Station, I got halfway through the prologue, and I just—I couldn't—I couldn't do it. It just like. I wasn't feeling it. It was like too many names thrown at me and there wasn't enough action to put the names in context. And then probably a couple of months later, I was like, Steve Gibson still talks about this. I'm going to try it once more. I don't know. I'm, I was on a good sugar high or something, but it's, it stuck into me. And these books are available for free, uh, legally free on the internet through the Bain public library or free library CDs that they put out and said they're free to distribute. Um, you know, so it was wasn't like somebody is ripping them off. They did this themselves to get their stuff out there. So if you can find this, the uh, CDs on the internet places still, you can read the first several books in the series and see if you like it. But um, it's, it starts off with this uh, commander of a cruiser in a spacefaring Navy is um, ends up relegated to this backwaters outpost and prevents an invasion um, and kind of holds off on interstellar war coming. Um, Honor Harrington female starship captain basically a rare strong woman in like you know a male dominated genre but i thoroughly enjoy like say the first half of the main series because it's centered on like her and her ship and eventually it it gets so large and the cast of characters gets so great that if I were to pick it up midway through, I probably wouldn't have cared about it, but there's enough interest. And then some of the sub series kind of takes on another commander and his ship. So you still get that small um, dialogue, the quippy dialogue, the, the fun stuff, you know, the action um, because when he gets into the politics, sometimes he gets way too deep into the politics, but there is enough action and enough love of the characters that it has kept me going. And now my favorite subseries of the one he's doing is probably the crown of slaves subseries because the banter between the two people, I mean, like I'm literally laughing as I read the stuff, but I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the books. Um, so much so that I went back and bought all okay, I'm cheap. I went back and bought all the ones I had read for free because I wanted to support the author. And now I buy the hardback version of the book when it first comes out because I want to read it rather than, you know, waiting for the paperback. So, um, if, if I'm paying full price for something, I, I, 
I can't give you a higher recommendation to read the books. But it started off kind of a space representation of the uh, 1800s conflict between England and France, and it's kind of morphed into other stuff. But it was just I. I just really enjoyed the space battles and the uh, camaraderie of the ship uh, and, and how it works. And, you know, and you have the good guys and the bad guys. And later on, some of the good guys were bad and some of the bad guys were good and all that kind of stuff. But I just really enjoyed it. Um, the There's enough shoot 'em up action and the politics. Some of the intrigue is good. And then the one bad thing he made this decision originally he was going to at the one particular battle he was going to kill off honor harrington and then the book series was going to pick up with her children like 20 years in the future well he decided to keep her alive and so he's trying to jam 20 years worth of development into these novels and so the last three or four novels have been probably 50 percent more uh similar uh, the exact same content between them and so it gets kind of old when it's like because i I don't have a photographic memory, but I remember a lot of stuff that I've read. And so it's like, I've read this exact, I've read this exact chapter. Like this is my third time now. I'm very familiar with it. Um, but I have reread the series. Uh, I did my initial reading. I've reread it. I'm probably going to reread it again this year. Um, just because, you know, I spend more time with Honor Harrington than with any other girl. I called her my girlfriend until she went off and got married. So, um, but Spoiler I'm just alert. <laughs> well, I mean, she got married. So if you go into like the Honorverse website or whatever, it shows, you know, obviously her name's different because she's married now. So sorry. Yeah. Guess what? There's battles and people die too. More spoilers. But so uh, no, I really enjoyed it. The the Honorverse is uh, if uh, D, uh, uh, the Lost Fleet is Star Trek, the Honorverse is Babylon 5. Um, it is very political oriented. It happens to be in space. But the story is about politics and in- intrigue. If that's if that's for you, great. It just wasn't for me. It wasn't. Which I loved written. Babylon Five, so that yeah. was great. And then my other, in a total you one hundred eighty degrees different, Louis Lamore. You know, I love reading his books. So it, you can't go wrong reading a Louis Lamore Western novel. So okay, those are my two things. <laughs> All right, and Miles, your turn. Um, well, I'm not a prolific book reader. I'll, I'll admit that up front. When I read, I read either because I've found myself at a holiday resort somewhere and I want to just relax, or it's some work assignment. So it's not something that I've been running to, but there's a couple of authors that have different have had different effects at different times in my life, and whenever they come out with a new book, I've pr- pretty much rushed to get it. Um, Daniel Suarez is probably one of my favorite authors only because he's a computer guy who used to live near where I used to live in Southern California and did a job very similar to what I used to do down there. And it's kind of, I relate to the guy, but his, his writing is outstanding. If you're, if you're into cyberpunk kind of stories or technology focused twisting you know to take some new technology which has just either come out or right on the cusp and then turn it into a thriller and uh, sort of a story like how it should never be used but that becomes the theory of his of his fiction um then you've pretty much summed the guy up and his first book uh demon was pretty much about video games and virtual reality uh sort of coming into the real world and he kind of had a follow-up book to that Uh, and then he's done a number of other books that i actually really enjoying his latter work um he did a a book called kill decision which was excellent if you're into drones um and the theory about what happens if drones on mass get taken over by uh, bad actors like government agencies that want to use them as a killing machine. So they weaponize drones and then fly millions of them into the sky and swarm attack, uh, you know, their targets, things like that. Um, kind of scary, but you know, it is, it, it's a thing you've got to think about, you know, cause we geeks tend to invent this stuff and then they end up getting used against us. 
Um, so before you, you move know, on to your next one, let, let me yeah. talk about my experience with Daniel Suarez. Demon, his first w- book from, I think, 2006, uh, Wikipedia. Yes, 2006. Um, really enjoyed that book. Uh, it, it's, it's technology that exists today being used in a way that is technically possible, though extremely difficult. Uh, but the the center of the book is a, a tortured genius who, who, you know, had a brain tumor and was just a total nutbag. And he turned his both genius and nutbaggery into creating uh, uh, this world. And I really enjoyed that book a whole lot. The follow-up to it, Freedom, I liked a little less. Um, the, the follow-up to that, Kill Decision, which is only barely a follow-up. I just, I didn't have the same experience Miles did with it. I, I found it mildly interesting, and uh, it was to the point where I was not interested in following any more of his work. I just, uh, I lost interest in it. Uh, it Again, it became more political. It became more um, uh, James Bond uh, type stuff, and, and that's fine if you like that. It's just not for me. I was, I was geeked out about the technology of the first two, and the third one became more a, you know, a quasi-love story. Uh, a spy adventure type novel that also had cool tech in it and uh, it just lost my interest um, but you know you have this wide range of of uh, input here uh, and so there's something probably to love uh, from our audience about any of them Seth have you read uh, any Daniel Suarez no not yet all right his so, last book is is interesting because it is slightly different um, it's called change agent and it's an interesting theory about DNA modification. And I, I worked in biotech for a while, so I kind of have a bit of a, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert in, in gene splicing or anything like that, but I get a sense of what could be done. And his, you know, this story takes it to a ridiculous degree, but there's a whole lot of things that, you know, are actually likely scenarios like the, um, in the very early chapters of the book, you come face to face with the problem that if people are allowed to biohack genes, then what happens when a couple are having a baby or want to have a baby and they go to these third party underground biohacking labs so that their kid gets stronger than everybody else smarter than everybody else more better constitution more resist resistance to uh, disease those sorts of things and it becomes a black market commodity because the government doesn't want that stuff being sold um you come face to face but that's a real problem because you know in the past it used to be well the government's going to ban cloning humans yeah but the chinese cloned sheep and they cloned other things and who knows scientists do stuff because they're scientists and there's very little regulation that's really brought to bear on this and even what we, i think what we're seeing as technology moves forward that the more that a government wants to clamp down on the use of something the more likely some geek is going to do it in their garage and when it comes down to biohacking kids the ramification of you creating a super child and what that could be in terms of the rest of society and how it disrupts, you know, imagine team sports, right? Your kids got, you know, DNA that makes them able to lift 400 pounds and everyone else is a, a little weakling on the softball team. Well, hello. <laughs> that that sort of likely scenario is real. And he talks to those things. And, and those things are interesting conversations to me. I, I like hearing about that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I, I would I would rate his books highly because of that. A good movie on that same subject, uh, underrated movie in my opinion, was Gattaca, uh, starring uh, some some people you know, Ethan Hawke, for example. Um, uh, late nineties, I think. Would you say Uma Thurman? Yeah, yeah. Uh, late nineties, uh, good book on that same subject of when when everybody can g- genetically engineer their child, what happens to those who choose not to? Um, so worth worth the watch. And I, I did remember the game, the the, the other se- books that I've reread. I can't believe I they left my head. Uh, Ender's Game, Orson Scott Card. Uh, it's a long series of books, but the two best of breed are Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow. Read those two, and you won't regret it. All right, now back to you, Miles. Well, the only other author that came to mind uh, is Terry Pratchett. Have you guys read any of his work? No, I have not. 
Well, he's a <laughs> okay. He's a fantasy writer, comedian, um, very, very good writer, very good storyteller. Um, invents these worlds that are kind of sort of like Tolkien on a planet somewhere, um, but very comedic. And the thing about the guy isn't so much his books because he's one of these guys who's written 50 books. I mean, at least that probably. But it's more he died a, a couple of years ago and his story of going from a, a very successful book author in England to being dead was actually chronicled uh, by the BBC. He did a number of documentaries. He died of um, it was like a neurological disorder. And bit by bit, he gradually lost the use of his hands so he couldn't type and then the use of his mind so he couldn't remember. And he tried struggling to write books all the way through the, the day he died. Uh, and he wasn't that old when he died. And this was all captured on video. It's a very sad story, but you get to understand a little bit about what made the guy tick. Um, but that actually wasn't the reason why he came on my radar. He... Uh, I remember in, I think it was in the mid 2000s, mm. um, Sky, the TV channel in the UK, did a full length movie for television called The Hog Father. And it was done right at Christmas time. And it was Terry Pratchett's twist on Christmas. And it was the most funny, beautiful, touching story that had nothing to do with the Christmas tale, but it was his his rendition in his crazy science fiction world. And it I know my whole family, we all watched it. My, you know, it was one of those moments that I had when I myself and my wife and my daughter all watched this thing and we all, you know, it'll bring you to tears. I mean, it's crazy. And this is a, this is a fantasy sci-fi author doing this. And when I knew that a guy like that could do it, I thought, yeah, this guy's amazing. But here's the thing, and this is a warning about his stuff. When you start reading his books, his actual, like, words on page, it's really not a comfortable experience. You feel like you just went to some English lit class in college. I mean, it's not, it's not pleasant reading. It doesn't tell the story in human terms it's a very highbrow style and i find it's there's a lot of movies that have been made of his books and they're excellent and there are two that you know if you can hunt them down one's called the color of magic which is a fantastic story if you like tolkien you'd love this guy and and the other one is called the hog father which is um, amazing and both of them you may be able to find on Netflix. And I know they came out in the UK. I'm not sure what, where they're available here, but definitely worth worth checking it out. And maybe having it, had the experience of watching those, you too might end up wanting to go and get the other 40 or so books he ever wrote before he died. Um, yeah, the, the Color of Magic was the book one of the Discworld series, which was he, what he was most well-known yeah. for, which I think is like 20-something books. It's a lot of books in the series. It is. It is. And like I said, they're not an easy read. But, um, you know, look, if you love Tolkien and you can read that, he's a walk in the park. Yeah, Tolkien is one of the few books of the uh, Lord of the Rings series I have read, actually physically read, more than once. So that that speaks to, to the quality. I did something I hated doing for a long time because they're long books twice. Yeah, I think people consider him as the sort of 20th late 20th century early 21st century tolkien in his in his realm and i know that's a real high praise but yeah. he has been able to be, get that sort of you know effect uh, Seth, we sort of blew past Louis L'Amour, and, and I shouldn't have done that. Uh, there are people in this audience who may not know who Louis L'Amour is and what he does. Uh, talk a little bit about why you like him and, and what he does. Well, one, he just paints such a great picture of the West. He was born um, around the turn of the century from 1800s to the 1900s, so he really wasn't like in that time period but like his parents were and so he 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 traveled the world he did all kinds of things merchant marine um 
everything, all different places of the world. But his passion was he was collecting stories from the old West. And whenever you, um, whenever you read his books, most of them are set in, you know, what, if you're from America, it's called the old West. And, his characters are fiction, but he writes a lot of real characters who actually existed into his stories that his fictional characters will interact with. And he actually gets the geography right. And uh, I, I actually I came across this website where this guy was like tracing uh, Tolkien or not Tolkien, Louis Lamore. And so he was like, you could follow and, you know, and you could go to places and like, oh, this is where he was talking about. And, you know, the old time and this was this was something that was done many, many years ago. Now, it was done pre web and kind of imported over to the web. And people were saying, yeah, he could have been a geography teacher because his descriptions were so great. But his stories, I mean, they're kind of simple, um, but he tells them so well. Uh, the one bad thing about him is like sometimes he doesn't know how to end the book. So you get this great story, and then it's not so much a climax. The climax is super quick, and then it's over. Uh, that would be my one drawback. But just reading his stories, it's like you're transported to another time, another place, and it's like you're actually living in the old West with people who kind of, you know, came from the East to settle the frontier. Um, you know, most of all, and I have not read all of his books. I've probably maybe it's well read over a hundred. Yeah. I've read maybe 20. Um, but you know, the, the good guys win kind of, you know, white hat, black hat, the white hats always win. That's kind of his motif, but just excellent stories. Uh, the visualizations like, I remember reading, um, it was actually the first, I didn't realize at the time, but it was the first Sackick novel he wrote. Um, and that's one of his families. And he wrote kind of like a whole series of them, but it was just some of the phrasing that he wrote describing the prayer. It's like, you know, that is just maybe one of the best descriptive sentences I have ever read. And so just an awesome author, um, hundreds of books. And then there's other short stories just enjoyable. Um, he is someone who tells tales of the authentic old West. He's not like somebody from today who's making up a character, um, you know, who goes, but he's like, you know, these characters, like I say, most of his characters are fiction, but you he runs into real people who were known, you know, and, and has interactions with them. And like one of the things I'm trying to do now, and I need to do some further research is I want to read the real books that he references, um, in his, uh, in his stories. So anyway, just highly recommended. Um, if you have any, if you have any desire to learn the history of the old West and get a feel for what it was like, you can read his stories and get that. Now, I never read any of his stuff, but my granddad always had a Louis Moore book in his hand. And I probably should go read that just to, for that connection with my granddad. But uh, every uh, couple of weeks, he'd go down to the used bookstore down uh, not far from our house, and he would buy a stack of Louis Moore paperbacks. And he'd read a, one a day, maybe every other day. They, they, they were pretty quick reads for him. Uh, and he just loved those books. I never, he died when I was in middle school, so I never really had a, an adult-ish connection with him. Never asked him why he liked them. I just knew that he did. Um, but yeah, he was a very popular author of well over 100 books. And I mean, there, some of them are long, but most of them are under 200 pages. So they are not long reads and they're not hard reads. They read very fast um, and they're not that long. You know, some of them, some of them do get into the two to 300 page range, but a lot of them are less than 200 pages. So they're not, you know, you read a David Weber book, you can take like three Louis L'Amour books and it's the same thickness. So um, just, he knows how to use one sentence when other people would use a paragraph or a page and and convey almost the exact same information. I think some people consider that like a, a badge of honor. You know, how many books, how many words you can use? You know, Faulkner was, was sort of famous for overwriting. That was the Faulknerian style was the way overwrite. And some of these um, um, pillars of the the literary community are all guilty of that. Uh, and I like, personally, I like concise writing. 
uh, which is why I, I really I have trouble with like Peter F. Hamilton. His stories are good, but you know he uses a lot of words to convey a simple thought. Um, maybe that was a style thing of the past. I, I don't know. We'll see. And uh, but it's uh, it's interesting that that there are sort of two schools of thought there, and you can you can enjoy both. Uh, but I wonder, I, I, my concern is that the digital audio world in which we live, the, the video and audio world that we live is going to kill, um, books themselves, not necessarily storytelling. Like, you know, for example, in the way that I consume them, it's still a book. Uh, it's just not a, a paper thing. It's, it's a story told in a style intended to be read. And, and I worry that that art is going to be lost because we are such visual creatures, we humans. Um, storytelling is still an endemic part of what we do. When anytime you get a group of humans together, we're going to launch into storytelling eventually. Storytelling is a big part of what we do. And yet our culture devalues the story. And uh, so that's kind of why I like doing podcasts about books uh even though you know i'm not a big reader i i do enjoy consuming stories that are intended to be read aloud um and i worry that that's being lost maybe maybe every generation worries about that but as i get older i find uh that protecting stories is more important to me than than it ever has been before that's an interesting observation i mean i i would say also that there's a the emerging uh, authors that are coming in um, we're not seeing as many fiction writers uh, coming in as we are seeing people using books as a as a uh, a way to authenticate their blog or their podcast or their YouTube channel because en- the barrier to entry on those things is so low, and yet to write a book has a high barrier to entry and it kind of solidifies uh, the author or as an expert in their field, should we say. That's an interesting, interesting point. I think as a culture, we just don't have the attention span to read um, a novel anymore. Now, not, not individuals, I understand, but as a culture, we don't. And two, there are still tons of fiction writers. You can find their work on Fox News and MSNBC every day. Touche, <laughs> <laughs> so. my friend. Touche. <laughs> Uh, so now, uh, with your, I kind of ruined your excellent segue about uh, Louis Moore's historical books, uh, but let's try to go back and pretend that I didn't and say, Seth, now that we're talking about history, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. Well, I wanted to let our fine viewing audience know that on March the 4th, 1977, the first Cray-1 supercomputer is shipped to the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. This supercomputer, which costs $19 million, will be used to design sophisticated weapon systems. The system is a cylindrical tower, seven feet tall, nine feet in diameter, and weighs approximately five and a half tons. The machine produced so much heat that it required a built-in Freon-based refrigeration system and it requires its own electrical substation to power it at a cost of roughly $35,000 a month. The Cray-1 was 10 times faster than competing machines, but speed came at a cost. Um, it drew over 115 kilowatts of power, enough to run approximately 10 homes, and over 60 miles of wire snaked through the Cray-1 with no signal longer than 3 feet to minimize signal delays. It boasted a world record speed of 133 megaflops and an impressive megabyte um, 8 megabyte main memory. And just for some comparison, I found a 2015 chart from Tom's Hardware, Intel's i7 run at 175 gigaflops. So, so a flop Mark, is a floating, op- floating operation yeah. per second. So right. the 133 million versus 175 billion out of your desktop PC. Correct. Wow. At $35,000 a month cost of power, I'm going to shut up about GPU mining now. <laughs> and so when I make jokes about the fact that we all have supercomputers in our po- in our pockets, I'm not kidding. Because, you know, my phone, maybe not uh, 133 megaflops, but in the ballpark. No, you're if you have a phone from the last couple of years, you exceed this. My crappy phone probably doesn't match it, but the first chart I found from 2010 talked about the high-end desk phone or high-end phones being able to match the speed. So yeah. we literally have supercomputers in our pockets and we whine about them being slow. Yep. And that 115 kilowatts of power, you could run 
I guess, I mean, you could run a, like, if my miner runs roughly one kilo, um, what do I run? Yeah, about a kilowatt of power. So I could have, you could have a hundred ASIC Bitmain S9s powering uh, through for that much power. You could be raking in some Bitcoin buck right there. It's like flipping the switch on uh, just under 120 microwaves at once. That's yep. what running this thing was like. You know, I have a, a house that's not super old. It's in uh, 25-ish years old. And when you turn the microwave on, the power, the lights blink just a little, just a little. Imagine doing that 120 times at the same time um, to have less power than your iPhone 10, whatever. Whatever yeah, we do, seven, seven eight. Yeah. Seven miles of cable in something that size. And these things were hand-assembled. Uh, you know, they weren't like mass-produced. You know, they were hand-building hand the components and assembling them together. So it took months to deliver one of these things. And now, Seth, what do you have to lower my productivity that's making you seem like a better hiring option? Okay, Mark. Well, if you were to have fired up a Cray and got the electric bill and thought, crap, I've got to save some money. Well, I have just the website for you. You have no need to throw out your old calendars because they can be re- <laughs> reused at a later date. You can go. You can go to when can I reuse this calendar.com and you can either check the check the current date and it will tell you when you can reuse that calendar and it will tell you what year previous calendars work. So for example, in 2018, a calendar from 1923 or 1934 or as recent as 1990 or 2007 could all be reused this year. So save the calendar. You can use it in the future to help pay off your electric bill. So anyway, Mark, um, that's what I have for you this week. So this is a joke, right? But when I was in uh, fifth, sixth grade, an insurance agent in town um, gave promotional stuff to all the students making thinking maybe he'll make us future uh uh customers or something and they were um calendars pocket wallet calendars from 1955 that matched whatever that year that it was when i was in uh in school and so i learned then that that was a thing that you could do because of a cheapskate real estate or insurance agent in my town cool I mean, it makes sense. Calendar calendar repeats itself every few years. So when can I reuse this calendar? For people who uh, need more of an excuse to hoard than they already have. And now this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. Let us know what you think. Go to elementop.com. Click the Contact Us button at the top of the page. Uh, and fill out the world's hardest CAPTCHA. Um, then fill out the form there that gets priority in my inbox. Or you can send an email to geekrant at elementop.com. That goes to all three of us. Or you can uh, go to 559-IMOP. Dial 559-IMOP on any uh, phone device of your choice. And uh, and leave us a voicemail on the Google Voice Line. We haven't had one of those in a while. Uh, and we'll probably play it on the show uh we appreciate your feedback uh we hope that um that uh that you have enjoyed this trip down literary lane i, I don't know that was a bad uh, lead in but uh let us know what you think about you know about whatever we do uh, we we enjoy uh your feedback even the bad stuff you, you should you should see us uh, getting together and laughing at the punctuation. No, we really don't do that. Uh, but we like hearing what you have to say. Uh, we like it better if you're praising us, but uh, uh, it's okay if you're not. Uh, and again, don't just tell us about it. Go tell the world about it. Go to uh, the iTunes. As, as much as I hate it, iTunes is still the de facto uh, directory of the web for podcasts. I don't think it's going to be that way for long, but it still is for right now. So go to iTunes and uh, leave us a, a rating and a review, and uh, that would be really appreciated. Um, Miles, Seth, any uh, final words of wisdom for the night? Yay. No. <laughs> and that's why they're the best in the business, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I do want to make a plug uh, for uh, for money. I hate doing this, but um, I, I, I did my taxes last weekend uh, for the year, and I filled out my Schedule Cs, and you, you people in other countries uh, don't know what that's about, but in the U.S., you know, we have the, the, the self-employment form, the business uh, profit and loss form is called a Schedule C, and when I filled all that out and, and did all ran all the numbers, um, Element OP Productions uh, made approximately $1,200 profit um, last year. 
by the time I fed some of that back into the business and and paid these guys, essentially each of us uh, made made about a dollar fifty to two dollars per hour that we did Woo-hoo! this show last year. <laughs> Uh, and More that's revenue money. from all sources, right? <laughs> so that's revenue from uh, the Audible uh, subscriptions, uh, elementopia.com slash Audible. That's revenue from Patreons. That's revenue from uh, um, eBay, uh, I mean, PayPal trips, not tips, not eBay. Uh, that's revenue from um, um, uh, Amazon affiliate links. From all sources, we made roughly $100 a month profit last year that when split up, and, and divided by hours means that we we got paid um, less than $2 an hour to bring you this show. I'm not whining about it. I enjoy doing this. But I am saying, I, I'm asking you, how much is this show worth to you? Is it worth more than a dollar an hour? If so, it's up to you to make that happen. I'm, I'm not out there knocking on the doors of Ford and uh, Rocket Mortgage and these guys trying to get them to sponsor a podcast. Uh, it's up to you. If you like it, pay for what you like. Um, and, and if you, like me, are ashamed to go to Miles and Seth and say, hey, guys, I'd like to uh, send you um, $1.75 per hour uh, for all the work you did last year, um, that that embarrassed me when I had to do that. But that's where we are. So if you want this show to continue, the best way to make sure that happens is to pay the people that do it as, as plain and simple as I can make it. I, I don't want I don't like to beg, but reality is reality. So um, go to patreon.com slash element and stand up and be counted. Pledge a buck a show. I think that's reasonable. I think we give you a dollar's worth of, of where that's two cents a minute. We do roughly a 50 minute show these days. If we're worth two cents a minute, pledge a buck a show over at Patreon. So I'm done begging. Um, thanks for being with us, everybody. The couple of guys that were hanging out in the chat room, thank you for for uh, being with us. Uh, YouTube, again, we apologize for the low audio quality on this one, but uh, at two cents a minute, it's not worth it for me to go back and uh, fix it. It's just not. So you get poor audio quality because you're not paying me. Sorry. Uh, we'll see you next week, everybody, because that's it for this episode of uh, the uh, the Geek Rant Podcast. And remember, pay for what you like.